Every once in a while, you're blessed with a moment of real clarity. People who have moments of life-changing clarity usually have them through traumatic experiences. As I've mentioned, I grew up in, in Mexico, and one of my friends, a woman just a little bit younger than I am, grew up to be a very successful anesthesiologist. She grew up in a pretty rural community where both Spanish and German were, were spoken from a family that didn't have a lot of material resources, but she had a dream eventually of becoming a doctor and went through medical school and then got her specialty in, in anesthesiology, and all of that started on a Mexican highway where her family had a terrible accident. And her, she herself and her parents and her siblings were literally scattered across the highway in various states of injury, and there were literally bodies and blood everywhere. They all survived it, but they all had to spend a lot of time in the hospital healing. And with her own healing and the time that she spent visiting mom and dad and brothers, she began to see what a remarkable place a hospital can be, how life-giving and life-changing doctors and nurses can be. And from that clarity was born desire in the heart of a teenage girl to be a doctor. She served in big cities and some of the toughest, pla poorest places to be found in Mexico or really anywhere in the world. Paul had a similar moment of clarity for an even greater purpose. It's Paul's letter we're writing. When we read the Bible and we read the book of Colossians, we're quite literally reading somebody else's mail. A real person sat down, carried along by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's how the Bible speaks of it, to tell us about a real church in modern-day Turkey, a group of Christians that Paul himself had never personally met. And he wrote them this letter to encourage them in the faith to counter false teaching that was starting to creep into the church and bother them in their newfound faith in Jesus. And Paul was the last person you would ever expect to be writing a letter like this to a group of people like this, because Paul's life, until he had that moment of clarity, was headed in an entirely different direction. Paul was a religious, observant Jew. Today, you might refer to him as ultra-Orthodox. In his day, they called him a Pharisee. And a Pharisee is a mean word that churchy people call other people when they don't agree with the choices they're making. It wasn't an insult in Paul's day. It was actually high praise. The Pharisees were those observant Jews who took the Word of God, at least in their own understanding, the most seriously. Legendarily, some of them had committed vast parts, if not the entire Old Testament, to memory because they thought they were the custodians of God's truth and they had the key to understanding and explaining the Scriptures, they literally thought they sort of held the keys to other people being acceptable to God. They had written down and preached in their synagogues Sabbath after Sabbath the authoritative understanding of what it meant to be a true part of God's family. They looked across the many hundreds of years of things that God had written to them and saw vast, wonderful promises that God had made to them, and as far as they could tell, they were the recipients and the custodians of all of this life-giving truth. So in Paul's day, 
when a vicious rumor started that there was a man named Jesus who was from the backwater town of Nazareth, just a carpenter's boy, born in suspicious circumstances, and that he was the one that God had promised across all of these Hebrew writings. Paul was infuriated. He was appalled. He thought it would destroy his nation. He thought it would subvert the faith and the word that God had given to them for generations. And with all his heart, with every bit of his energy, he tried to stamp out any mention of the name of Jesus, much less personal faith in him. He was actually given authority to pursue Christians anywhere he could find them. And he was on a road to Damascus, Syria, the famous Damascus Road, when Jesus personally came to him, and that was Paul's moment of clarity. He was literally knocked off his high horse, and he groveled in the dust and asked the wisest question anyone can ask Jesus, what do you want me to do, Lord? And once Paul knew who Jesus was, then it wasn't a myth that these weren't crazy people making up a story, but this had actually happened in human history. He had that moment of clarity, and his entire life purpose changed. He gave his life to knowing Jesus better himself. That was for himself, and as far as his activity, Paul said in this letter to Colossians, I'm making every effort. I'm striving with everything that I have as God's power works in me to make the name of Jesus known. What we're about to read has some dense language in it. In fact, if you have a literal translation, as I do, they've kept a word from Greek and just brought it over into English, and Paul says that he is now explaining a mystery. Anybody like to read or watch mysteries? When I was a kid, I discovered Agatha Christie, and I read about a dozen Agatha Christie books because I was a conceited little turkey, and I thought, if I read enough of these, I can figure her out. And I can know who done it before she tells me on the last page. <laughs> not once. Not one single time did I figure it out. It was really annoying because it's a small cast of characters. There aren't that many choices. You would think statistically I'd guess correctly one time, but I didn't. That's what we refer to as a mystery. That's not the biblical concept of a mystery. Anytime you see the, the word a mystery in the New Testament or anywhere in Scripture, It refers to this, a mystery is something that God knows and that God has planned forever, but He hasn't pulled the curtain back, He hasn't revealed it, He hasn't set it into motion until His time is right. What Paul's telling us in this passage is this, I know a life-saving truth about Jesus. He's writing that to Colossian Christians, former pagan Christians. Read with me, Colossians 1, verse 24. He said to these former pagans, now his brothers and sisters, because they believe in Jesus as Paul, to his own surprise, does, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. If I'm reading the Bible slowly, that alone kind of sets me back. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. Here it is. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. In other words, revealed to God's own people. To them, to those believers, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And now He's going to tell you what the mystery is. My constant encouragement to you is when you come across a Bible Scripture, read it slowly, read it often, just take it a phrase at a time. Generally speaking, the Scripture itself will explain itself right there on that page. What does Paul tell you the mystery is in this verse? I'll back up a little bit. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, you read that and you say, that sounds very, very, very familiar. Yes, because we're Gentiles. Almost all of the Christians in the world today are not Jewish. It's a commonplace in our culture that the very mention of the name of Christ is going to be offensive, hurtful in some corners at least for people who are Jewish. You can go to Israel and find that they've, in some places, very strict places, they won't write a lowercase t because they won't make the shape of the cross. It's that distant in our day. Jesus' first disciples were almost all Jewish. Jesus Himself was Jewish. He was born from a Jewish family in an ordinary Jewish town. And the Jews understood once they came to believe in Christ, they reread their Bibles as Paul did and saw the name and the work of Jesus for hundreds of years across their Scriptures. But the idea that Christ could be in anyone, that He could go to these pagans and lift them out of their depravity, a paganism so bankrupt that one of the reasons the synagogues were well attended in Paul's days, not only by Jews but by Gentiles, is the pagans were reaching, as our culture sometimes is, the absolute end of its own ideas. They were literally diseased. Their families were torn apart. They were a civilization increasingly in ruins because their pursuit of mystery religions and religious secrets and all kinds of wicked paganism had led them nowhere, and they were desperate to hear from God. That's why Paul was so self-confident as a Pharisee. He thought that he understood what God's plan was for his people, and everybody else, they were in Paul's understanding and in actual prayers of the Pharisees, they were, they were far outside of God's promise. It wasn't uncommon in the first century to refer to Gentiles as dogs. But even that's not very offensive to us because we take our dogs into our Christmas cards. <laughs> and I've seen many a, many a person with a bumper sticker referring to the grand pups. <laughs> Have you seen this? So a dog doesn't sound too bad to us. Here's how disconcerting, here's how world-tilting, here's how life-changing it was for Paul to understand that Christ could be in the Colossians, that He could give them the hope of glory. Imagine if I told you that Jesus died to forgive the sins of poisonous snakes and that cobras and adders and boa constrictors would be welcomed into God's family just as you were. Do you have a hard time with that? You would. 
So did the first disciples. You can read in Acts chapter 10, Peter struggled mightily with the idea that he is to present the name and the message of Jesus to a Roman soldier. It just wasn't done. And now here, Paul says, I am the custodian, I am the steward, in other words, the manager of a, of a spectacular truth, which is, he says, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, a neighboring city. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged anyone, everywhere, Colossi, Laodicea, anywhere in this far-flung Roman Empire, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What's Paul saying? I know a life-saving truth about Jesus, and here it is. He is all. All the wisdom, all the riches, all the power of God is seen in Jesus. See, the Colossians and their pagan world were being invited into what some have called mystery religions. They'll still predominate in our day. You can find them on the bestseller racks at Barnes & Noble from time to time. A mystery religion tells that if anyone is willing to pay the price and get the secret code words and do the certain things, then reality will be opened up to them, and they will be in a secret, select, blessed group, and they'll understand what's really going on. That's the appeal of the mystery religion. It was made very famous in a movie called The Matrix. Anybody see The Matrix? This life is actually a simulation, but there is some an experience you can undergo that will help you see the true reality. That's the environment the Colossians have grown up in. Now there are religious Jews like Paul once was saying, Jesus is an imposter. At best, he's a start, but you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the diet. You need to keep the days. And Paul is saying just the opposite of that. This mystery, what God has unveiled when He sent His Son, is that Christ is all, and here's the radical part, He can be in anyone. Race, ethnic origin, former beliefs, former sins are no obstacle, no trouble whatsoever for Jesus. His grace and His love can encompass the whole world. That's good news. That's good news for my family because I'm Cherokee on my mom's side and a whole conglomeration of probably ne'er-to-do Europeans on my father's side. We're a mess. There's nothing in our family history to recommend us to God. There's nothing in yours either that will make you acceptable to Him. But Paul says Jesus is all and He can be in anyone. And this is the mystery. This is the long unveiled truth that God always had in His heart but only rolled out at the proper time. Years ago, about 11 years ago, I went to Dallas to officiate a wedding. And at the reception, 
a little stir started in the reception, at the tables at the reception because the bride and groom were given a hotel in the south of France as their wedding gift. Did you catch that? <laughs> the guy next to me said, what'd he say? He's sending them on a honeymoon to France? I go, no, he gave them the hotel. Well, whoa. They've lived there ever since. That's their life. That's their income. That's their platform for ministry, actually. They're wonderful Christian evangelists. Now, here's the point. There's no telling how long that family planned to do that. You don't just give someone a hotel in the south of France on a whim. They weren't driving toward the wedding saying, hey, what do you think we should give the kids? <laughs> well, I, you know, I was thinking, what if we give them the hotel? <laughs> All right. You got the keys? Yeah, I got them right here. It wasn't like that. This rich plan had been in someone's heart for a very, very long time, and at the proper time, at the best time, they changed that couple's life with a magnificent, rich gift on a much, 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 much bigger scale. That's what God was doing when He sent His Son. That's why Jesus explained it like this, for God so loved, what did He say? Not the Jews. Not they alone. He loves them too. He is one of them. But God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that if anyone, no matter what they've done, no matter how guilty they've been, no matter how shame-filled they are, no matter how wicked their former beliefs and practices were, if anyone, self-righteous or wicked, confessed sinner, if anyone believes in Him, he shall have God's treasure. He shall have eternal life. The life-saving truth that Paul knows about Jesus is that He is all and He can be in anyone. He expresses it this way, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's never met these Colossians, but he's saying, here's the gospel, here's the good news, Christ is now in you. And he uses the word hope in a very specific way that I tried to explain a few weeks ago. Hope here means not that something that you wish for, but something that is waiting for you. Christ is in you, and that gives you the certainty of a beautiful future. That gives you glory. Because your arrival in heaven is just as certain as, Christ, as the fact that Christ is already in it. That's the beauty of the gospel. If you're new to church, let me explain it to you very simply. What I'm trying to tell you is I'm trying to tell you of a person named Jesus Christ who alone can save you. I'm not recommending to you a different belief system. I'm not trying to proselytize you to change you into a different religion. Religions are dead ends. That's what Paul discovered on the Damascus Road. All his striving, all of his effort, all of his sincerity, even though he did everything he did until the moment he met Jesus with a clean conscience, it was all for naught. And he would give his testimony as one who had been the worst of sinners, but when he met Jesus, now he has the certainty of heaven, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the gospel. The mystery of God is Christ Himself. I'm not inviting you to change your religious thinking. I'm asking you to put your faith in a person who can save you. That makes all the difference. Years later, when Paul was in, on death row, he wrote his last letter and he explained it this way, I know who I have believed. 
It's important to know what you believe, but it's far better to know the person you trust, who you believe. And Paul said, I know him, and I know he's able to save me because he is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Then he tells these Colossians what he said at the beginning, because I know this truth, because I didn't invent it, I'm not its owner and its creator, I'm just a steward, I'm a manager, I'm someone who can announce this good news. Here's the radical part of this passage for our church. He said, I know a life-saving truth about Jesus, so I'm willing to suffer. This is so life-changing, this is so life-giving that I'm willing to suffer so that other people will know the truth. Look back up in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Again, if you read the Bible seriously and you take it slowly... You ever said that to anyone? I'm so joyful that you've led me into suffering. This is really, really, really difficult. Isn't this great? Isn't it great that we're hurting together over this? I'm so glad I can hurt for you. That's what Paul's saying. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Every once in a while, I've had that thought, and it almost always has to do with two groups of people. The first is my wife and my children. Occasionally, as a dad, I suffer for them, and though I don't like the pain and the difficulty of it, it's a beautiful feeling, actually. When you think of what the suffering contributes, that's what keeps parents going. It sometimes also happens when I think about you, the church, my brothers and sisters. Not often, but every once in a while, I suffer a little bit as your pastor and as your fellow Christian. And it's a beautiful thing because if together we're moving to trust God more, to love Him better, to obey Him, that's actually a cause for joy, even though it's painful. What Paul is saying is, I am not only willing, I'm joyful in my sufferings for your sake. It gets more intense. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church. Does that phrase surprise you at all, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Isn't the gospel's message that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and sat down at the right hand of God because his suffering was over? Isn't that the basic idea? Come on, Bible readers. Come on, Christians. If you're new to church, that question isn't for you, but for those of you who've read it before, I mean, what in the world is going on here? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does Paul think of himself perhaps as a co-savior? Jesus did 95% of the suffering, but he left 5% undone, so Paul's going to do the rest? Is that, you think that's what he means? No. What's the key? Again, if we slow down and read in context, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. In verse 29, he says, for this I toil, that's hard work struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What's he talking about? The announcement that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to forgive sins, that is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. That's why I'm not inviting you to rules. I'm inviting you to trust Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord every day of your life. His suffering really is complete. 
And Jesus sat down because his work was done. What is Paul doing then? The cost of the gospel of saving anyone and everyone who would ever trust Jesus, that suffering is over. But the suffering required to spread that message, that is far from done. What Paul is saying is Jesus is no longer physically present. He is hard at work in me. I feel his energy surging through me. And my response is I toil. I suffer. I preach. I get arrested. I get beaten. I go to prison. I put myself in death's way so that anyone who hears the gospel can be saved and grow to maturity in Christ. That's the suffering that is required. Paul's saying, cross point, is this. Jesus is hard at work in us, so we should work hard to help others grow in Him. His suffering is completed. Ours isn't. What's that look like? Well, that looks like some awkward conversations maybe at work because the one thing you cannot discuss at work is your personal faith. That looks like very intentional, purposeful service to arrange your schedule with all that you have to do just to get through life and pay the bills in Southern California where it's so hard and we're all so busy and most of us spend so much time in traffic to intentionally arrange your schedule. If that means getting up an hour earlier to get started on that mess, so that your life can contribute to people coming to full, mature faith in Christ. Everywhere God has placed you, that's His purpose, to present through your influence, through your work, people mature in Christ. Let me be very practical. Parents, that begins at home. And that's not easy, especially for dads. If I could just talk to you like a fellow Father and your brother in Christ, what has happened in the United States is we have created a culture of delegation wherein well-meaning parents take their kids to church, plug them into programs, and hope that it sticks. It's not working, and it was never God's intention. So part of the suffering, part of the toil, part of the struggle, dads, is for you to do what Christians have done for generations and what God-fearing Israelites did before then, to know God for yourself well enough that you're a step ahead of your, of your family so that you can teach them and bring them along with you. You have to shake off the apathy of thinking that someone else will help your children grow to maturity in Christ. It means spreading out that influence from your own home. It means looking around your neighborhood and realizing that the most important question you could ever ask yourself about any of your neighbors is, do they know God's Son? Do they know the one who has all the wisdom and riches of God Himself? If they don't, no matter what else they know and have in life, it will someday come out to be empty, as Paul realized in the dirt of the Damascus Road. All of his achievements were for nothing. It means as a church family, we collectively take responsibility to stewarding our time and our money so that this message can spread from beyond these walls into our neighborhood and around the world. 
That takes something else that involves suffering for a lot of Christians, and that takes generous financial giving, purposeful, planned with Jesus on top of the budget, not giving Him what is left once we pay everything that we think we need. Again, that's another cultural distortion that puts Jesus in second or third place, wherein well-to-do Christians, and most of us are well-to-do, not all of us, but most of us are, We set our mind on a lifestyle, and once that is achieved, if there's anything left, that goes into gospel work. That goes to spread the good news beyond these borders. Paul had it right. His life, he realized, was upside down, but from the moment he met Jesus, he and his little band of brothers, including Epaphras, an ordinary Christian who was from the city of Colossae, they worked hard This is not just an apostolic thing. Look in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, referring to the ordinary Christian who took the gospel to the Colossians. Chapter 4, verse 12, Paul said, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, what's that word? Struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What's this ordinary, otherwise anonymous Christian doing? He's working. He's striving. Look in Colossians 1.29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's study that verse together. In Colossians 1.29, who's working? I heard two answers. Good news. You're both right. Take it slowly. What's the first phrase? For this, what's he say? I toil. I'm hard at work. This keeps me up at night. Remember, he's writing this from prison. This is an ivory tower theologian telling you about what he thinks it might be like or what might be a good idea. This is a man in prison, perhaps in chains, writing and dictating letters through the middle of in the middle of great physical suffering. For this, I toil, struggling with all. His energy that He powerfully works within me. Who's at work then? Jesus is. Jesus' power is surging through Paul, but here's the point. Make this practical, and we'll go home in just a minute. It still looks like work. It's still a titanic effort, parents, for you to bring your children to maturity in Christ. Please give up on the random collection of church services, and I hope something sticks. It won't work. It's not. Look around. Look anywhere and see what that delegation system has brought us. The point of being further along in spiritual maturity for Christ is much like a parent. You look behind you to see those who cannot yet learn for themselves, who cannot walk firmly on their own, and you strive in love for them because you love Jesus and you love them and you want them to come along with you. What does that look like at our church? That looks like one-on-one discipleship where men and women are meeting privately and quietly, men with men, women with women, to intentionally have one person pour into others love and learning and faith and trust, and it's changing our church. It looks like small groups that aren't just social gatherings. They're very purposeful and very intentional, and I'm watching in my own group people move from I'm not sure to I'm really passionate in love with Jesus Christ. It's amazing. 
It's what we are to do. If we know this life-saving truth about Jesus with Paul, we should say, I'm willing to suffer. What I'm asking is, what if we took a posture of service instead of privilege? See, the Christian church is in a time of seismic change where privileges are being challenged and taken away, and we're screaming and fighting all the way down. What if we realized that our Savior Himself was a servant who suffered and died, and we said, as He lived and loved, we will live and love, and we will posture ourselves to serve other people. We will willingly relinquish our privileges so long as other people will arrive at maturity in Christ. The point of all this, Paul says, is to bring anyone and everyone to maturity in Him. That's the beauty of the gospel. It can save anyone. If you want to feel the depth of the radical nature of the gospel, ask yourself, is there anyone on earth who you would have a hard time thinking that Jesus could save? Is there an individual or a group who you think is beyond God's love? That's where Paul lived, see. That's why it was so radical for him to meet Jesus and why he is such a different man as he pursues bringing this message to other people. This week I received a letter from a missionary. We've just begun to support. He's in, I have his permission to read the letter, but I have to read it in such a way that would not endanger him or the people he works with. Here's what he wrote. A young man stating that he was still a Buddhist but baptized Catholic as well as two baptisms in two other churches along with the experience of having numerous churches lay hands on him and speaking what he called strange languages, cried out and said, I'm confused, I have no peace, and I fear dying. Please help me. It was a blessing to open the Bible and let this highly educated young man read Scripture about his lost state as a sinner and the answer being the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He enthusiastically said, I want this gospel. We both kneeled down, and he cried out to God for salvation. When he finished praying, he looked at me and said, I'm free. Then he said, this is the first time in my life I have ever heard the gospel and the first time I ever read a Bible. Thank you. Please pray for his spiritual growth. That's in a corner of the world where the man might be in real trouble if this story were widely known with the names and the places. That same Jesus is at work at 7661 Warner Avenue. He's at work in your neighborhood. He's at work in your home. The question is not whether Jesus is able and willing to save. The question is if the people He's already saved are willing to suffer with Him and for Him for the sake of others so that they can be saved and grow to maturity in Christ. The good news of the gospel is we can, because of the power of Christ, bring anyone and everyone to maturity in Him. Look in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. All this striving, all this working, this writing is so that you won't be confused and drawn away from Christ. Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's what your life counts for. The reason Jesus saved you is the same reason He saved me and the Apostle Paul and Epaphras and every other Christian. If Christ is our all, if He is the gospel, if He has all the riches of God Himself, and if He can save anyone, then, Christian, then, church, any suffering to bring others to Him will be worth every single bit of it. It will be worth it all.
So let's pray together and let's make this as practical as we can. Could I ask you to close your eyes in prayer to have a quiet moment to yourself? Let me ask you in expanding circles, beginning at home, your, your most intimate friends, the people you're closest to, whether they're family or friends, are you able now to help them grow to maturity in Christ? And if you are, are you doing it? Maybe you've just started. I'll explain. Our church is here. Our church exists in agreement with Paul to help you grow to maturity in Christ. Our God-given desire, our heartfelt prayer is that we will be able to strive as he did to present you mature in faith so that you'll look back in a few months or years and be amazed at how he has grown you up, how firm, how steady your faith in Jesus really is. Beginning at home, are you having that influence? Is it known at your school, at your work? Do you have people you pray for? Does it bum you out at all that people you think are just the greatest people on earth? You don't, you don't know if they know Christ, the one who is the very greatest? Mom, Dad, how's it going with your kids? Are you just hoping that something sticks? Do you have a prodigal that you're praying for? Listen, those tears of a mother, of a father over a child who's far from God, those are holy and precious to God. Don't get discouraged. The prodigal story isn't over until he's safely home and the father's love. I'm talking to you about intentionality, about time and conversations and purpose and money all poured into helping those who God has brought around you mature in faith in Christ. And the second question, and I'm done, is the most important of all. Do you know this Savior? I'm going to make you a very simple offer and invitation to trust Jesus as your Savior this morning if you don't know Him. To give up on religion and good advice and trying harder and trying out different belief systems. To be like this young man who had tried all kinds of different things, finally heard the good news that Jesus could save him, believed Jesus, and said, when it was over, I'm free. Wow, I can do the same thing for you if you'll turn to him in prayer and say, Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin. I trust you. I don't understand you completely. I don't know all of who you are or what you might want, but I believe that you are the Savior. Save me. And he will. My only other request is, if you make that decision, let us know on that connection card. Moms, dads, if you're striving at home or if you're not, but now you're concerned about it, let us know on that card. This is why our church exists. It's not just to have once a week gatherings and have a pep rally. It's to help people seven days a week grow to maturity in Christ. Let's pray about it and you commit yourself to the Lord to pursue Him and help others do the same. Lord, take this time. Start with moms and dads, I beg you, the apathetic dad who's think he's done enough by coming to church. Give him a greater vision, Lord, of what you want for him, of the strength and the grace you have for him. Help him take the first baby steps of maturity himself so that he can bring his wife and kids with him. Do the same for single parents and for people who are live alone and are lonely, would you just knit us together, Lord, into a body that is maturing in faith? And from this corner in our homes, we'll spread this good news so that we may present many to you 
Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to save. Help us suffer for that good news so that others may stand with us someday in your presence, holy, blameless, above reproach. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.